You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson. She is co-director of the Gender Center and Associate Professor of History and Political Science at the University of Indianapolis. Dr. Wilson will be talking with us today about the increasing number of women in our legislatures. Welcome, Dr. Wilson. Thank you for having me. Uh, Now, it's apparent to everybody with an eye that the U.S. now has a record number of women in high offices of city, state, and federal government. And I personally have seen phenomenal growth in my, my own lifetime. Uh, In a nutshell, how did this happen? Well, it truly is the reaping of rewards of of decades and generations of women's work to be involved in government and policy. And it's exciting to be uh, an observer, uh, passionate about policy and and government right now, because we're seeing that play out. Um, There were truly decades of women um, seeking these kind of opportunities. But what we found is the first generation of women um, looking in terms of public office were oftentimes either the wives or daughters of politicians who'd passed away while in office. And so they picked up, they continue those terms. And then really, once you get into the 50s and 60s, you see women running in their own right. But it's not until truly 1992, when we talk about the year of the woman, where you see a dramatic increase of female candidates. And having more women in office provides a, a sense that you know, it, obviously it's possible for young girls and for other women looking that this is an opportunity. This is something that they can aspire to. And it's also important in terms of policy that's produced because we know that women provide a different perspective and experience. So right now, as we sit in 2023, we see increasing numbers of women in office and we benefit from the policies that they're influential in. Okay. Now, with these larger numbers of women in government, what assets do you think that they'll bring to the table in government and in politics? We know women provide a different perspective in terms of how they approach leadership and what they do, but I would even start off with the very basics. So we talk about representation. There's both symbolic and substantive. And so when we think of symbolic representation, it's purely the idea of symbolism, that if I see other women in public office, I'm encouraged by the fact I could do that if I wanted to. I could see myself there. Um, My daughter could see herself in that kind of position. And that's the idea of symbolism, but it's not just limited to that. So if we think of substantive representation. We know women tend to be more focused on cohesion and community building. So there's an emphasis in terms of collaboration, whereas men tend to be more hierarchical in their leadership and focus. I think the ideal kind of democracy, any even a group project, quite frankly, doesn't have to be government related, involves both of those styles. It's a combination of those. So recognizing that women approach leadership differently, women bring a different perspective and experience, I think is a large part of the contribution and a reason why it's most important to have them in any position where decisions are being made, but especially those in government, because those impact us all as part of the public. Sounds like democracy. (laughs) It is. Well, it seems to me that the women in these high offices are significantly younger now than just a few years ago. And I could name 
several specific examples everywhere from governorships to the U.S. Congress. And I wonder, do you think this, I'll call it a female youth movement, has improved American government? And has it come perhaps at the expense of experience? And has that same movement had any downsides that you would be willing to admit? <laughs> you know, I would say as an optimist, I think it definitely has some advantages we can discuss. There could be limitations, but at its very best, it, it might be a reaction to the typical politics we've seen play out. So if we if we step back, just talking about age, regardless of gender, it, historically, there was this idea that you had to pay your dues and you had to climb the ladder and the ladder was very tall and you had to spend decades dedicating yourself to a political party before you were tapped for this position. And then that and that there really was a hierarchy of expectations. We see that eroding now for a couple of different reasons. And one of them is that we don't carry the same expectation of candidates as we did in the past with regards to political experience. So we've had people serve as president, but also in other areas of government that didn't necessarily have political experience before. That used to be seen as an absolute must. And now we're saying, well, you don't have to have that same kind of background. That makes that ladder shorter. And it also means that people recognize you, you can be younger and you still have something to contribute. Now, if you add that with the intersectionality of women, this is tremendous because historically women were kept out of the process as a barrier because they didn't have the time to commit to the political party or to the political landscape more largely uh, because after they maybe graduated high school or perhaps attended and graduated college, they may have dedicated themselves to their families. They would have been expected to more than men, and they wouldn't have been able to start climbing that ladder until their children graduated and moved off, went away. And by then they're decades behind their male counterparts. So for women, this provides a, a particularly interesting opportunity, but I think there needs to be balance in anything and truly having institutional memory, having lived experience is valuable for policy as is having the energy, sometimes maybe the gall or the curiosity to try different things. If we have too much of one or the other, we're probably missing out. And so to have a nice balance uh, between both, I, th I think, is essential for good policymaking. All right. Now, despite the progress we've all seen, it remains a, f a fact, I think everybody would have to admit, that the proportion of women in high government office is still below their proportion of the U.S. population. Could you give us the ex the approximate numbers here, those two proportions? Yeah, so we're looking at just under 28% if we look at Congress in terms of um, female membership. It's a little bit better if you look at the state level for state legislatures. So the average is right around 32%. And for listeners who are curious, I always recommend looking at the Center for American Women in Politics. It's based out of Rutgers, and they keep lots of historical data as well as state level comparisons. But in both cases, I mentioned we're talking less than 33%, right? Uh, and those are just the legislative bodies. But that's true essentially at every level of government and in every branch. Women are underrepresented. Um, compared to being proportionate in the population to around 50, 51%. Now, the system of government we have is self-selection, uh, whether or not a person chooses to run for office, something I'm sure we'll get to chat about later. Uh, but you don't have to declare your candidacy. And we don't require 51% of Congress to be female just because the population is. There are a lot of underrepresented groups, and a large part is because not everybody chooses to run for office. I be absolutely remiss, though, if I didn't add that when we look in terms of intersectionality, 
it's even worse beyond just gender and sex the purpose of this conversation, right? If we start looking at race, if we start looking at ethnicity, if we start looking at education um, and background. So there are a lot of um there are a lot of ways that we look at our elected officials and our institutions and they don't represent the people um, in that same kind of way. Gender, of course, is just one of those. Okay, given that uh, we agree that you should we should get those two numbers closer together, proportion in office and proportion in the population. Uh, can you suggest how we might do that? Is it just a matter of time, do you think? Or we have, have we already reached some kind of absolute limit? And a related question, have women perhaps found it relatively hard to finance their campaigns? Well, I certainly hope we haven't reached the absolute limit because that'd be uh, very depressing. But I also am afraid if we just expect things to change over time without doing anything to initiate the progress, that's probably not the solution either. What we found in terms of critical mass um, and the idea of encouraging more women to vote and to run for office specifically is just that, being encouraging, creating pipelines, working on recruiting quality candidates, anyone you know. Uh, thinking, you know, would this be a good person to serve in office? A lot of the literature shows us that women are less likely to consider themselves for political office relative to men. And that's a lot of research done by Richard Fox and Jennifer Lawless. But in part, part of the reason we see this happening um, is because women look at running for office differently. They consider different things. And specifically with campaign finance, there's no research that says, oh, this is this is the problem. In fact, there are a lot of challenges, but we do know that there's a wage gap. We do know that women make less. We know that women still carry a burden of the domestic duties relative to men in most households. And I know that as a generalization, but all of these things amount to more and more barriers, more and more obstacles placed in front of a female candidate versus what we necessarily see in front of a male candidate. And one other important thing to add here is that campaigns are prohibitively expensive. If you look at this past congressional cycle, when we're in the 100,000 millions for some of these Senate seats, they're not cheap to run. Very few people self-fundraise, uh, but you do have to be comfortable with asking people for money and asking them regularly and often and over and over again. And recognizing some of the ways that we've socialized women to be different and some of the ways that politics is set up, I think there are additional barriers that we have to be realistic in understanding female candidates and male candidates don't have the same pathway to success as the other one. Okay, now there have been several groups that have recruited women to stand for election. A national group would be Emily's List, and closer to home we have Indiana's Women for Change Mentoring uh, Academy. How important are these groups, would you say, to building increasing numbers of women in the legislature? These groups are essential, and hats off to them truly, because they recognize the value of female leadership and not just encouraging individual women to run, but setting a pathway forward, creating a training program and a process. I would add too, in Indiana, um, the Democrats have Hoosier Women Forward, the Republicans have the Luger series, but these are created from the political parties because of their recognition that it's important not just to encourage women to run for office, but to create a process, to create a training program, to create strategies for them, to give them the tools for success. We know we have, we call political pipelines. And for women specifically, we talk about these professions that have a pathway to politics. So things like uh, places like education, 
business, already being involved in politics, not in elected office, but serving in administration. And of course, law, because that's the most prominent position we see reflected in in politics. But in any one of these pathways, we recognize that this is a place where you have women who would naturally fit as candidates. Now, I feel it as being double-sided. I I have this bittersweet feeling towards it because on one hand, you want to strengthen those pipelines, right? We recognize that that is where a majority of women who might be interested in running for politics would already come from. They'd already have some of these natural talents. That'd be great. But we also have to ask ourselves, what industries are absent? Um, What areas are women um, not being represented from? And and those areas, quite frankly, they're going to be impacted in policy. Uh, In particular, I always think of healthcare. And you have a number of women involved in healthcare. They're part of the system. That's where they've dedicated their careers and occupations. And yet they're not necessarily reflected in the same way in public office. So recognizing kind of that double-edged sword in terms of pipeline professions and, of course, the value of organizations, as we've discussed, um, that help recruit the candidates and give them the tools and information they need to have strong candidacies and ultimately win. Okay, thank you, Dr. Laura Wilson, for your insights on the increasing number of women in our legislatures. And to our listening audience, thank you very much for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has fought since 1920 to improve our government and to engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Next month, we hope you can join us when we talk to Marsha Veldman, who is the state coordinator for the Citizens Climate Lobby.